Hello, and welcome to the Disrupting PFAS podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Hale. For this season of the podcast, our theme switches to natural materials and processes for the detection, destruction, and sequestration of PFAS. Today, I'll be talking with Alan Sermo about stabilization of PFAS-contaminated soil with activated biochar. Alan is affiliated with the Department of Environmental Chemistry at the Norwegian Geotechnical Institute and also with the Norwegian University of Life Sciences. I chose this topic because it makes use of natural material, biochar, that shows promise for the sequestration of PFAS. So let's learn more about the topic from one of its innovators. Welcome to the podcast, Alan. Thank you, Jeff. So could you please tell us about the Department of Environmental Chemistry at uh, the Norwegian Geotechnical Institute? Oh, well, yeah, of course. Um, we're a rather small group of uh, about 15 people. We're mainly environmental chemists, some marine and geochemists as well. Um, we used to be a part of a much, much bigger and uh, more general environmental consulting department. But we had a bit of a restructuring process a couple of years ago. So now we're kind of focused the chemists in one area. And um, we do a lot of different things, uh, both consulting and applied science. And uh, we tend to go where the, well, the next challenge is. So this is why during the last five years or so, we've gotten quite heavily into microplastics and and PMT-related uh, issues such as PFAS. Uh, we also collaborate a lot with other groups at the Institute. So uh, we often get involved in projects uh, where geotechnicians or geologists maybe are, uh, where the main issues are related to geotechnics and geology rather than chemistry. So um, yeah, we have a varied selection of work problems to work on here. Yeah, I noticed that from reading your publications, it looks like you have a broad experience with um, a range of geotechnical and environmental issues. Uh, I I think I'm like you. I, I tend to gravitate to the hot topic or where the action is. Um, was there anything specific that uh, drew you to PFAS other than it's, uh, you know, it's a significant environmental concern these days and it's uh, getting a lot of attention? Was there anything specific that drew you to that topic? Uh, well, yeah, I um, I had this approach when I started here about eight years ago that I would uh, try to get involved with uh, as many things as possible, you know, try to learn as much as possible. Uh, hence the broad kind of range of topics that I have in my publication list. But there were two things um, some years back that kind of coincided. The one thing I was uh, working on a consulting project where I was doing a risk assessment for uh, hazardous waste sites in Norway. And uh, we discovered quite a lot of PFAS in the, in the landfill leachates. And the customer didn't really know why or where it came from. Uh, they had no clue. So this led to a lot of uh, interesting detective work. And uh, at the same time, um, I got this, uh, I stepped in at the yeah, a temporary uh, technical lead for contaminated sites because my colleague Sarah Hale had a maternity leave. So in this uh, in this uh, uh, or in this role, we had uh, I was in charge of uh, 
leading these uh, work groups on PFAS. And we have quite a lot of PFAS related projects. And Sarah, Sarah has been one of our pioneers when it comes to PFAS. And uh, so she had set up this work group where we could discuss and share experiences related to PFAS projects because they offered a lot of, um, of challenges. Uh, a lot of uh, things were quite different to other other contaminants we've worked with. So uh, through leading these work groups and, and trying to figure out this problem for my landfill client, I, I kind of started realizing how like the scale of this problem and and how thoroughly good solutions are needed. So this is, uh, I'm kind of drawn to, to challenge. So yeah, this is, I guess this is why or how it started. Okay, well, thanks for sharing uh, your pathway to PFAS with us. Uh, I know we're dealing with the number of uh, instances where PFAS are related to landfills and, um, you know, obviously PFAS are associated with a, a variety of industries. I think sometimes different industries or drivers might uh, differ from country to country. So thank you for sharing uh, your perspective from Norway. So I was reading NGI's proposal for new normative values for PFAS and PFOA in soil. Uh, one thing that I wasn't particularly clear on from reading the document was whether those values were uh, protection of groundwater values due to leaching of PFAS from soil or if they were just uh, general uh, soil criteria for PFAS and PFOA. Um, could you uh, explain that further, Marlon? Yeah, of course. Um, I wasn't involved in this particular work myself. I've, uh, I've done some work related to deriving such values and um, I also spoke to my good colleague Hans Peter Arp, who was responsible for this, and he said that they had four endpoints uh, assessed four endpoints uh, when they derived these values, and uh, they were uh, human health, um, soil ecotoxicity, aquatic ecotoxicity, and secondary poisoning. So, uh, in this human health uh, endpoint, the leaching to groundwater is considered. Because the way we usually do it is that uh, when you consider an endpoint and there are multiple exposure routes or uh, like for the human health issue, and uh, then you choose or try to identify the most sensitive one. And for human health, uh, the exposure to PFAS and PFOA through drinking water wells was the most sensitive exposure route. Uh, and this was actually uh, the one uh, the controlling value like uh, was the endpoint that was chosen to control uh, the, the normative value. So it does consider um, the PFAS leaches to groundwater and then uh, a human being drinking this groundwater. And uh, actually the aquatic ecotoxicity gave uh, even more sensitive value, but it wasn't uh, really applied here because it would uh, be more relevant for special cases where soils are close to lakes or coasts and where there's a little or no dilution occurring. So that would be like very specific cases. So uh, groundwater is actually the key thing here. And uh, this is like a general approach when we, um, when there are many different things you have to evaluate, you, you try to find the most uh, critical and the most sensitive, and then you use this as your uh, guideline. 
of course, the drinking water uh, level or the amount of PFOS before and drinking water is then related to uh, weekly to tolerable intake. So that's how it all fits together. Okay. Well, thanks for that explanation. I think um, your work on the stabilization of PFAS and soils can definitely play into that um, uh, leaching to groundwater criterion and help uh, at least help to eliminate uh, that pathway. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we when we started talking, uh, you told us about the Norwegian Geotechnical Institute, but I understand um, you're also affiliated with the Norwegian University of Life Sciences. Could you tell us a little bit about your uh, your work and role at the Norwegian University of Life Sciences? Yes, of course. Um, well, the thing is that I'm currently working on a PhD, and uh, I still have my job at the Norwegian Geotechnical Institute. Uh, where we have a big research project that is funding my PhD. Uh, but I'm affiliated with the university because they, of course, the official institution that will award the, the degree when or if it's completed. So uh, this work I'm doing now related to producing biochar sorbents and stabilizing PFAS, amongst other things, is a part of my PhD project. Okay, well, thanks for that, uh, and good luck in the pursuit of your PhD. Thank you. So why don't we switch and talk more specifically about some of your recent research. So today we'll focus on stabilization of PFAS contaminated soil with activated biochar. Um, so Alan and his team have recently published that topic in the Science of the Total Environment, so congratulations to you and your team. Thank you. Uh, so I guess a good place to start, Alan, is you know, biochar itself. What What is it and how is it produced? Well, biochar is a porous, carbon-rich material that you get when you take some kind of organic matter and heat it to a fairly high temperature in an oxygen-free environment. This process is called pyrolysis. So what type of materials or feedstock, if you want to call it that, are used to create biochar? Well, you can make it from anything, really, as long as it has fairly high content of organic carbon. So uh, but typically, biochar has been produced from uh, agricultural res residues. So, uh, uh, for example, rice husks or coconut shells or corn stovers or like any kind of surplus uh, organic material that there's little or no other use for. Uh, but you could also make it from other types of uh, materials like uh, just wood or wood waste. And, and more recently, people has, uh, have also been looking into using sewage sludge, uh, food waste or other uh, such waste materials. But there's an important discussion in the biochar world about this term and how it should be applied. Because some people say it should um, relate only to sustainable production chains. So uh, you take some kind of waste material, uh, preferably clean residues like the agricultural residues, and then you pyrolyze them. So uh, you shouldn't grow a tree solely, solely to cut it down and make biochar from it, you know, because then you kind of ruin the whole sustainability perspective here. Uh, and also, a lot of people are saying that if you pyrolyze plastics, 
for example, or material or a waste fraction where, where there's a lot of plastics, you shouldn't be able to call it biochar because uh, plastics are made from a fossil carbon source. And well, I myself, uh, I'm not a purist. I think yeah, biochar should be anything, uh, any pyrolyzed organic substance. But I do think it's very important to consider the production chain and the bigger picture. So, like, uh, consider emissions, uh, and you consider whether you're cycling contaminants in the process or releasing them. And uh, yeah, and you should really consider that uh, the potential, other potential uses for the feedstock. Like, if there are other higher value chains that make more sense, you shouldn't be producing biochar. Well, appreciate that clarification. Um, I've been looking into biochar myself quite a bit. It is a fairly broad term. One thing that uh, piques my interest is the opportunity um, to, you know, upcycle a waste material and then further use it um, as an environmental treatment medium, especially to remove PFAS. So I think the sustainability and upcycling potential for that type of material uh, is is um, very promising, uh, but I do appreciate your clarification that um, you know it needs to be done sensibly, and not everything that's pyrolysized uh, would constitute biochar. Uh, your definition sounds, or I guess the material itself, the biochar material, sounds um, very similar to granular activated carbon, which is commonly used to treat uh, PFAS and other things. Um, how does it, how is it similar? How is it different? Well, um, as you say, um, it is quite similar. Biojar has been used uh, a lot for agricultural soil improvement, but um, lately, or I guess during the last 10 years or so, or a bit more, uh, people have started realizing this uh, what seems like the rather obvious connection between AC and biochar, like you have a carbon-rich porous material that could maybe trap contaminants. And um, they are similar. The thing is that AC is usually produced from a fossil source. So you take lignite or coal, and then you activate it through some kind of activation process. And this usually gives a, a pretty uniform product. High internal surface area, high porosity, uh, not a lot of um, exciting surface chemistry going on. You remove a lot of the functional groups in the activation process. It's like condensed, very condensed uh, aromatic carbon. The properties of biochar vary quite a lot depending on the feedstock you use and the pyrolysis conditions. So, but if we should try to find the most, or the biochar type that would be most similar to AC it would be a biochar produced from some kind of solid wood residue at a high temperature. And um, ACs are generally considered better sorbents due to these, uh, the high internal surface area and the, the porosity. And uh, you can get this in biochars that are produced at high temperature, for example, or maybe activated like we did. But um, they tend to be um, to have a little lower porosity, a little lower surface area, not just the, the same structures. The thing is, though, that biochars have a very variable surface chemistry. So this could actually be a benefit in some cases if you want to 
for example, trunk heavy metals. It doesn't really work too well with AC, well, not for all heavy metals. But if you have a biochar with a more, um, well, with more functional groups in the surface, these could maybe aid in trapping heavy metals. So um, biochars are much more diverse than AC. And so um, it's similar, but it's not perfectly similar. So you touched on it a bit, um, but could you talk about the activation process? What is done to activate biochar? Uh, well, the activation process is an oxidation process. So you need some kind of oxidation agent. And this oxidation agent uh, attacks the carbon, some of the carbon, and it removes the surface functional groups and, and it oxidizes and tears down thin layers of carbon, so maybe um, core walls uh, are removed, and this expands the pore structures internally in the, uh, in the coal in the terms of uh, activating the pore to make an activated carbon, the traditional one, and then biochar just um, expands the existing pores or create new ones. Uh, you can use chemicals to do this, uh, or you can use um, physical activation at high temperature. So it's funny that we call it a physical activation because it's actually, a, it's, it's also an oxidation process. Uh, but it's, uh, if you use a chemical, uh, you have to use strong acids and bases and, and there's, um, there's issue, you produce uh, maybe waste materials like solvent, uh, sorry, acid or base waste. Uh, whereas if you do a physical activation, you add, for example, steam or water. And, um, so, um, a lot of people consider physical activation the best way to go. Um, physical activation can be done either in one or two step operation. So in the one step operation, which is the one we use in our paper, we add steam or CO2 directly into the pluralist chamber. So uh, maybe this would give you a little pause to, and you're thinking like uh, CO2 or water doesn't really sound like a very powerful oxidant. We could of course add oxygen, uh, but then this is too powerful oxidant. It will eat away all the carbon. Yeah. Of course, if you add too much O2, you get combustion instead of pyrolysis. So you add steam or CO2, but you have a very high temperature in your pyrolysis reactor. So typically more than 800, 850 degrees. And this high temperature kind of um, takes you above the activation energy needed. So the water or the CO2 can act as an oxidant. So um, this, is, uh, this is how it's done generally. A two-step process. Uh, you take biochar already produced and then you put it into a reactor where you won't do the same. But um, if you're doing a one-step uh, process, you have to also paralyze the biochar at a high temperature because then you're injecting the oxidant in the pyrolysis process. And the two-step process, you can take uh, biochar already produced maybe at a lower temperature and then activate it later. There's not a lot of research about uh, pros and cons of uh, choosing the one method over the other, but uh, maybe someone will tell us more about this in the future. 
Okay. An interesting aspect of your paper uh, that I thought was the optimal balance between the amount of biochar amendment, um, the degree of activation, and the production yield of the biochar. So I think those three variables, it's a balancing act um, to get the right proportion. Can you talk about um, those variables and how they relate to each other? So the amount of biochar you would have to use in an amendment compared to its degree of activation and how that relates to the production yield of the biochar? Yeah, that's a very good point. This is one of the things I was uh, uh, thinking quite a lot about when I wrote this paper. The thing is that uh, the amount of biochar amendment needed depends on how high uh, the affinity the biochar has for uh, for your target contaminant. So if you have a weak biochar sorbent, you need a lot of it. And of course, this comes at a cost. You have to produce all this biochar and, and the energy that goes in the process and the feedstock needed, so on and so forth. But if you make uh, biochar at a low temperature or non-activated, it gives you a higher production yield. So uh, for the case of PFAS, producing a weaker biochar will give you a higher yield, so you get more of it. And you also retain more of the carbon in this process. Uh, but if you activate, you get a much stronger sorbent because you expand the, the pore systems. But, uh, and then you need less of this sorbent because it's stronger. This process, of course, requires more energy uh, and it reduces the production yield quite a lot. So for the biochar we produced uh, for our paper, um, I think the yield was almost halved by going from non-activated to fully activated. So you lose a lot of material in the activation process. Because, as I said, it's an oxidation process. Uh, so it's very important to balance your production between making a lot of a weak sorbent or less of a stronger sorbent. Uh, so I think it's quite important to consider your amendment target. So it could be that your remediation operation does not require a very strong sorbent, and it's okay to produce a weaker one. But if you have a very tough case, uh, then maybe you need to go fully activated high doses. So yeah, it's a it's a bit of a trade-off to be considered there, and I think it's a, it's probably best solved using um, a life cycle approach. Get someone to do the life cycle analysis. Yeah, I think it's important for people to be aware of those those variables and how they affect each other. Um, but you also added the fact that it kind of depends on your objective or the, the type of site you're applying the material to. So if you had a, a very small volume of impacted soil, perhaps at a high concentration, um, mm. yeah, that might require um, a more activated biochar at a, a lower volume. But if you had a much bar a larger site, um, you know, maybe there would be a trade-off in, you know, more material at, at, at less sorptive capacity. So uh, that's mm. something that I I think was a good add on your part. Um, appreciate that. Um, so let's talk about uh, PFAS contaminated soil. So your paper and your study focus on amending PFAS contaminated soil 
with biochar, what type of soils were used in the experiments? Well, we got our samples from an old firefighting training facility at a decommissioned airport in southern Norway. So um, this we used both uh, the topsoil, which was very organic rich, um, 30%, 34% TOC, if I remember correctly. And uh, we also sampled the lower lying mineral soil, which had very little organic matter, so about 1.6%. And um, this site, this was a typical example of um, uh, yeah, soils affected by legacy contamination of uh, AFFF, firefighting foam. So they've been uh, putting out fires there at this training facility and spreading, and spreading all this foam into the soil. This is, uh, I guess, uh, we have a lot of these sites around the world. But uh, this is typical old AFFF with uh, mostly PFOS. Uh, it was 83% PFOS in topsoil and 89% in the lower lying soil. Then you had a, a smaller fraction of the PFHXS, uh, which was 5 and 9% in the top and lower lying soils. And I think the PFOS concentrations were. Uh, 1,000 and 3,400 micrograms per kilo in the okay. top and lower line soil. So this was quite high. It was, mm -hmm. uh, I think, uh, about 1,000 times higher than this normative value we are talking about earlier. Well, that's probably a good transition uh, to the next question. So I'm looking mostly at PFOS and PFHXS in soil at concentrations 1,000 times um the normative value and so let's talk about the results of how effective was the biochar at sequestering the pfas well it was actually surprisingly good we're very happy to see the effect of our sorbents and uh we look as i said our main focus was of course on pfas and pfhx since they were the most abundant but we also had a range of other uh, pfas such as uh, I think it was a percent or two, and then there were other PFCAs and PFSAs and uh, a couple of other fluorotelomeres as well. So there was like, uh, uh, we have data on a lot of different PFAS, but of course the focus was on uh, PFAS mostly. Um, I think in some of the scenarios we tested, we had uh, almost 100% retention of the PFAS, but it did vary uh, quite a bit. And we identified several factors that affected absorption. For example, in the mineral soil, uh, we got really good results either with a high dose of the non-activated sorbent or with a low dose of the activated ones. Um, it was much more difficult to get good results for the high organic topsoil, however, because uh, in this for this soil we needed. Um, high dose fully activated sorbent to get close to full retention and also it was much more difficult to retain some of the shorter chain pfas compared to the longer chain ones so for pfas we got really good retentions but for pfba for example it wasn't that good like even at uh, fairly high doses it wasn't perfect yeah, so it's, it's complicated, you know, uh, and uh, this kind of brings us back to targeting sorbent for a specific case. So here, 
we see that the soil organic matter matters a lot. And also the type of PFAS you have in your soil. So uh, it's not an easy thing to solve. Yeah, we see that with a lot of sorptive media. Um, you know, the, the challenge of sequestering or retaining those shorter chain PFAS. Um, and maybe that's a good segue into my next question. You know, what are the challenges, limitations, and further research that uh, should be conducted in this area, in your view? Well, uh, as you mentioned, these short-chain PFAS are, uh, are difficult to retain, and we need to find, uh, find out more uh, about the mechanisms uh, that control the interactions between these short-chain PFAS and sorbents in order to optimize the retention of, uh, of these PFAS. And um, what has been found is that um, hydrophobic interactions uh, between the, the fluorocarbon tail of the PFAS and the, the surface of your AC or biochar is the main sorption mechanism. But you also have some electrostatic interaction between the functional heads uh, and the, charged sites on the, on the surface of the AC or the biochar. The thing is that the functional head is usually negatively charged uh, under most ambient pH levels. And the same goes for the biochar surface. So you have a repulsion. For the long chain PFAS, you have strong hydrophobic sorption. And the sorption is so strong that the head group interaction doesn't really matter. But for the short chain ones, uh, the repulsion starts to uh, or weakens the hydrophobic interactions to such a degree that they're difficult to capture. So we have to find some ways of maybe modifying uh, our sorbents so we can better trap these short chain PFAS. And uh, of course, we need to upscale from lab tests to actual in situ stabilization to see how this works in field conditions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, are there other use cases for the sequestration of PFAS with biochar? So we're talking here about um, amendments in soil, um, but I'm thinking about are there use cases where um, biochar could be used for water filtration or as a permeable absorptive barrier? Do you envision that at all? Absolutely. I think in theory you can substitute biochar into any process where you use AC. As long as the biochar in question has uh, like a high enough affinity for your target contaminants. But you might have to do some work on the physical properties uh, of the biochar material. Because, for example, when you have uh, granulated activated carbon, it uh, has a, a nice well-graded size distribution that allows for a nice water flow, uh, flow through a filter, for example, and, and allows for a certain um, kinetic uptake so in order to make a certain biochar work for a water filter, for example, you need to think about um, uh, maybe producing granules or, or um, looking into how uh, the, the, the size and the distribution of the biochar grains affects uh, kinetic and hydrogeological uh, factors. Okay, I mean, I like the idea of, uh, you know, diverse uses for this material and, you know, we need as many solutions for PFAS that we can find and 
um, I think a an, an unique aspect of this or an exciting aspect of this is, um, you know, being able, again, being able to use natural materials, especially if they're waste materials uh, for the absorption and sequestration of PFAS, be it as soil amendments um, or for water filtration like uh, other materials have been used. So I, that wraps up this episode of the Disrupting PFAS podcast. Thank you to Arlen Sormo for joining us today. And I'm your host, Jeff Hale, reminding you to never save forever. 